Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Please visit SupChina.com, download our smartphone app, or subscribe to our daily email to stay on top of the news from China and enjoy a growing selection of originally reported stories and videos from China. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Manhattan, where I am joined by my dear friend Jeremy Goldcorn, once infamous as the potty-mouthed prince of Peking punditry now tamed by my assiduous bleeping. Jeremy, do greet the people at home and please keep it clean. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I now live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Uh, and so, of you, course, you everything that comes us. out of my mouth is now pre-rinsed with evangelical soap, which means, if nothing else, I am allowed to say shithole. Right. Because you that's what their guy now, says. Right. Yeah. You are allowed to say shithole. It is now completely legal to say it's shithole. It's illegal. Okay. So, Anla, you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> uh, both Jeremy and I have been fortunate enough in recent months to have spent some time at the Fairbank Center at Harvard, getting to know some of the amazing folks who are affiliated with this very important bastion of China studies. Uh, if any of you still need convincing, though, I highly recommend that you get yourselves a copy of The China Questions, Critical Insights into a Rising Power. That book is the subject of this week's podcast, and the two scholars who edited it are, we are delighted to say, our guests this week. Joining us here are Jennifer Rudolph and Michael Sony, co-editors. Jennifer is associate professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, where her main area of focus is modern Chinese political history, but she teaches just about everything China and Japan related under the sun. Jennifer, welcome to Seneca. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, Jennifer, I should add, ranks among the world's foremost authorities on Zheng Chenggong, or Kaksinga, about whom I composed a mnemonic couplet while studying for a freshman history survey that went, Zheng Chenggong was a pirate king. He fought the Qing to restore the Ming, or something like that. And I still remember that little ditty. Okay. Can I include that in my work on him? Please don't cite me. As a source. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was 18. Well, welcome, Jennifer. Michael Sony, welcome to you, too. You are a professor of history at Harvard University and director of the University's Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, which of course produced the book we're going to discuss in today's podcast. Michael's expertise is on China's southeast coast with a focus on local cults in the Ming Dynasty. Uh, and I suppose uh, Zheng Chenggong must have figured prominently in your own research as Michael. Uh, along with many other things, because you are something of a China polymath. Michael, welcome to Seneca. Both of you, Michael and Jennifer, are long overdue. Thanks very much, gentlemen. It's great to be here. Uh, so I'm going to start out with a strangely basic question that I think all of us who do what we do uh, really have to have a, a good stock answer for. That is, why should we as North Americans bother to try and understand China? Okay, I mean, maybe China didn't make Trump's list of shithole countries, but since the two of you edited a book built on huge questions asked of experts who've toiled a lifetime and then just expected an answer in just a few pages, uh, I, I figure you can answer 
question like this to kick us off. Jennifer, why don't you take a stab? Well, I can put it in terms that um, Trump can appreciate. Uh, (laughs) China is the world's fastest growing economy, and it is arguably, in anyone's estimation, the most important bilateral relationship that the U.S. has, the U.S. and China's relationship. And so you're right, it's not a shithole country. It has uh, experienced rapid growth. Um, It's military, it's rapid modernization. And so these are very clear types of issues that even non-China specialists recognize just from reading the newspaper. So with that in mind, having a greater understanding of China is in everyone's interest. Well, do we always have to make the case that it's it's complicated? I feel like uh, the China people have to defend the complexity and the, the nuance and all the context that one must take to, to the understanding of China more than people talking about any other country. Why, why is that the case? Well, I'm not sure that that China is any more complicated than any other country, but I think one of the things that that really drove us in shaping the chapters of the book was the idea that we hear in the media and in comments by politicians a lot of very glib statements, uh, statements that oversimplify China, that, that suggest that China, all of China is one thing, one way. And both Jennifer and I felt, and, and I think our colleagues at the Fairbanks Center also felt, that uh, one of the responsibilities of academics is to show, to point out where those glib generalizations are leading us astray. And as Jennifer says, this is uh, an enormously important relationship. Uh, misunderstanding that relationship is is bad for Americans, it's bad for Chinese, and, and it's bad for the world. And if I could just add one, one additional sort of rationale to the ones Jennifer gave— uh, as we mentioned in the in the book, the big problems of the world, the big problems that we face and our kids face, problems of environment, problems of the global of global security, problems of jobs. Uh, Americans are not going to be able to answer those questions and resolve those issues without China being involved, right. and therefore it just makes sense to know more about what's going on in China. Jennifer, Michael, um, who was the intended audience of this book? I mean, I think I have a, a sense of it, but who did you set out to communicate with is my first question. And related to that, how did you convey to the authors a sense for whom they should be writing to, you know, what level of knowledge and understanding of China? Um, I mean, this to me is a, a really interesting enterprise because you, you have taken some of the, the most uh, renowned scholars on China and you have set them to a task in some ways of answering questions that, you know, th- these are not questions that necessarily an academic or a scholar would ask. These are questions that an ordinary person would ask. How did you decide what to include and how did you talk to the authors about their voice and their tone and how they should pitch it? One of the things that Michael and I wanted to do with this book was to take the incredible brain trust that is the Fairbank Center and all the knowledge that's generated there on China and make it more outward facing and more accessible to a general population. And so the intended audience for this book was a a general audience that is interested in global affairs. We wanted the the essays to be accessible we wanted them to be of interest to a general audience. And so when we were talking to the authors about this and getting their buy-in, we made it very clear that the essays had to be um, written in a way that people would want to read them. And so we 
said, you know, they could be written like an op-ed. These scholars have decades of experience, and they are the experts on these topics. And so we wanted them to distill those decades of knowledge and present the answers to the questions that they were writing on in a way that anyone who's a reader of the New York Times or the Atlantic would be able to uh, appreciate. And so um, they wanted, we wanted them to write ex cathedra, really, about their topics and in a way that would engage people. Yeah, Jeremy, that sounds an awful like we've got a new project plan, which is sort of a more mass market thing. And I think, yeah, that was sort of the same maybe touchstones, the Atlantic reader, the New Yorker reader, the New York Times reader, the NPR listener, right? Mm-hmm. These were these were the people you were, you were writing to then. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we were we were mainly writing, I think, for Jennifer's husband, <laughs> who was actually one of our first readers, uh, not a China expert. Uh, Steven Pinker always says that there's no reason academics shouldn't be able to write for an educated lay you audience. You're married to Steven Pinker? Oh, that... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I am related to my husband through marriage. Oh. Um, and it's true. Yeah, we, I When I was editing the essays... Uh, I would often think, will my husband appreciate uh, the style in which this essay is written? Would he get the uh, references? And, you know, he does international development and had a degree in international relations, but he's not a China person. He knows a lot more about Africa and South America than he does China. And so um, when I would be reading the, the essays, I might say, Brandon, do you know what this is? And if he said yes, that stayed. If he said no, then I would write a little note to the author and say, okay, we need a different reference. <laughs> it didn't pass the Brandon test. It, pa- it had to pass the Brandon test. Very good. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the first people to read the finished book was my mom, because she got one of the first copies for Christmas this year. She's a retired school teacher. And uh, she has, as a good mother, bravely struggled through all of my ad- academic writings. And as she read this book, she called me after, after she had received the book, and she said, it's so great because you can open it up on any page and, and find something interesting and understandable. And I thought, nailed it. High praise, although on the other hand, your mother basically well, said, yes. this is the first thing you've written I've been able to read. So. In so many words. <laughs> well, and that, But this is the first thing, first thing that my husband has actually read the whole way through. So I think that's a huge testament that, that I've been involved in because usually he says, oh, this is just too academic. Right. And um, he loses interest. But this, he read the whole way oh, through. Oh, well, I, I, I'm not it. surprised at all. It's a great book. I mean... It, yeah, it's, it's also really, it's, it reads really quickly. It's very I mean, it's readable, unbelievable yeah. how fast mm-hmm. you can read this thing because of it, just because it's in the short sort of consistently interesting chunks and then they're over before you know it uh yeah it's a, so what you're saying is it's painless yeah <laughs> high praise indeed thank you well, <laughs> but but thought provoking it's like a twitter it's like a twitter post jennifer talk about the process for selecting the questions that you actually did include and and tell us maybe both of you can think about this what were some of the questions that didn't quite make the cut that you might have included were you to publish a longer book in this format Mm, now we have to go back a couple of years in terms of memory. Um, well, we generated the questions through uh, discussions. Uh, Michael and I sat around a number of times with some other colleagues at times as well and just thought, okay, what are some of the big questions about China? And we wanted to make sure that those big questions that we generated about China were questions that we thought a general audience would be interested in. And so we came up with lists, and then we also wanted to think about the expertise of the Fairbank Center, which is extensive, and then try to match some of those questions with particular scholars. And that was the big test, I thought, in this whole process, was going to the, the individual scholars and saying, okay, this is the project we're involved in. Do you want to be involved in it? 
And everyone said yes. But then we would give them a question that we had come up with. And many of them tweaked or rewrote uh, the questions. Mm. Although, Um, if if I could just interrupt for a second, it was interesting that some of the most respected scholars in the world uh, who who participated in the project had never really thought about writing for this audience, for this kind of audience. So some of them accepted the questions without any question. And then when the book came out and we said, well, why did you choose this particular question? They said, oh... Jennifer and Michael chose the question. <laughs> they were they were just they treated them as commands. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, that is a wonderful feeling yeah, for an editor. Exactly. Yes, yes, very that's powerful. what you want in a writer. Yes, when you're very powerful. So, what 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 some some ones that you would have included had you had a longer book? Do you do you happen to remember either of you remember any that ended up on so, the floor? So I'll mention I'll mention one where the author declined, where the author said I can't write this. Okay. Um, I thought uh, Stephen Owen is one of the greatest scholars of traditional Chinese literature and poetry working in any language. And I posed the question, are the Chinese poetic? Uh, and he just said, I wouldn't know how to begin, right. how to answer that question. So that's one that that's one that didn't make it. I Another kinda, one. That, I kind of see where he's coming yeah, from. That was, that's, that's not an easy question. Like, no, yes. they were well, what does the t- question even mean? To be tough questions. And the other the one that framing didn't, is essentialist, right? I mean, uh, the other one that didn't make it, uh, and in this case, the author, uh, the author we had hoped would write, just wasn't able to wasn't able to. to to meet the format was why is Chinese so why is the Chinese language so hard? He could have gotten mm-hmm. David Moser, right? He'd already written that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's already written that chapter. Unfortunately, he's not a faculty member at the uh, uh, Center, okay. so there was that. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Indeed. Well, you could hire him. Um, <clears throat> and you should. So how did you decide on the order in which the questions were raised? Um, and I, I guess I'm sort of asking this because when Ka- you, you, you kindly sent Kaiser and I a copy of the book before it was published and you know, one of his first comments to me was like, what do you think somebody from China would think when they open it up and are confronted with the very first question, is the Chinese communist regime legitimate? Now, of course, from my point of view, I think that is the perfect first question because that's what most Americans will ask first. Uh, but nonetheless, there was a an editorial decision-making pro- progress uh, process there. How did you decide... How to order everything? I think. Wait, let me just add. I think so. The reason why I think I, I reacted, raised, in, that reacted way, yeah. in that way is it's a couple of things. First of all, I mean, it's it's this idea that presupposes that a regime isn't legitimate unless it's democratically elected, which means what every regime outside of Western Europe or, or North America prior to seventeen what eighty one what was was illegitimate, right? But it's a question. Right, right. I mean, we sure, could have, sure, we could have asked, the why other is, is the, the Chinese is, government is, not legitimate? The other one is is the word regime, which itself is a, a pejorative word. I think you'll agree in American usage. It is, unless you're talking about like a tax regime. We don't talk about regimes unless we talk about them. It, it connotes illegitimacy already. So I, I thought there was a problem with the way that the question was phrased. But anyway... Uh, well, I think I think that it was quite intentional, actually, to put it first. <laughs> well, you don't agree that the word? Re- do, you, do you talk about the Obama regime? Do you talk about? I, I I I think that if you're going to ask questions about China and you intend to uh, enlighten the American public, the very first question they would ask is that question, and they may not use the word regime; they may use something worse. But that's the first question people ask. Okay. So to me, there's no problem. I think it's. But I hear hear what you're saying. Well, I think it it addresses an assumption that most Americans have about China, and so the assumption is that China's current regime is somewhat illegitimate, and that that with economic reform, then we're going to see a shift 
to something that the that Americans can accept, which is a more democratic regime. And so that first piece that Liz Perry wrote, in my mind, it was meant to address that right off the bat, that this is a Chinese government that has some staying power, and that she questions in that implicitly the assumptions that many Americans have about China. Sure. And so that's why I thought it was an important question to ask, and I thought it was the perfect essay to put at the beginning. And we also grouped the essays by general categories, and politics was a big one because we thought that's what a lot of people would be interested in. Absolutely. But it comes back to something you you mentioned earlier. The basic answer that Liz Perry gives to that question, is the Chinese Chinese regime legitimate, is it's complicated. So in a sense, actually, she's, she's answering the very question you've posed, right? She's saying maybe it's possible. And this comes out really clearly also in Bill Alford's chapter on Chinese law. She's saying maybe it's possible to think about legitimacy in ways other than democratic mandate, right. right? If we decide that the only legitimate regimes are parliamentary democracies with elections, then no, it's not. But clearly, lots of Chinese people would disagree. Clearly, there's a body of political theory that says legitimacy can be defined in different ways. There's so, performance legitimacy there's exactly, and whatever. Right, right. And, and, and revolutionary legitimacy. Right. And the, the, she hints towards the end of the chapter at this new and, and increasingly powerful idea in China, which is meritocracy. That is that the, the regime is legitimate because its leaders are chosen on the basis of talent and merit and experience. Um, Which and that's sort of a consonant pro- with this, you know, old Confucian idea, right? I mean, yeah, it's uh, we, you know, we could we can talk about wh- how consonant it really is. <laughs> Certainly, the Chinese government is making that claim. Sure, um, but I mean, you know, that's actually a really interesting question to be asking and thinking about, not only at this moment in Chinese history, but at this moment in American history. Mm-hmm. But you know, my objection was just basically because I, I could very easily imagine. Uh, you know how people are these days. So a, a PRC national coming to this, picking up this book and reading it, is just going to toss it aside and say, "I see where this is, what this is all about." But if that P- PRC national read it, then I think well, they're they still would... going to they're still going to include after reading Liz Perry's article that no, I mean, so there, it's not it's not a ringing endorsement of the legitimacy of this government. But so we, have, about, we have a chapter right. on whether there's going to be another Dalai Lama, and that kind of torched the Chinese. Legitimate Chinese edition, so yeah. it's 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 going to be circulating on the internet in China, right. and that's fine if it that's provokes some it. discussion. Fair enough. Right. <laughs> great, 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 great. Yeah, you weren't uh, going for China sales. Huh? Well, the original idea was the original idea was that this was gonna this was gonna be a huge bestseller in China, uh, and that was gonna like support the endowment of the Fairbanks Center, but. Uh. But then we read our, the essays yeah, as they our came authors in. authors kind of torched that possibility. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the free speech thing is kind of a, it kind of tends to spike your business plans. <laughs> um, Michael, I'm pretty sure that most of the people in our audience are, in fact, familiar with the Fairbank Center at Harvard University, but maybe not everybody. Um, you know, this book was a project of the Fairbank Center, and, you know, all the scholars obviously are at the Fairbank Center. Could you tell us a little a bit about the center, its mission, and its history? Sure. Well, in fact, the project was was very much envisaged by by Jennifer and and by me as a kind of tangible uh, commemoration of the Fairbank Center's 60th anniversary, which happened uh, in 2015 2016. Uh, so it's 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 very much tied into the Fairbank Center's history. So the Fairbank Center was was founded uh, by John King Fairbank. It wasn't called the Fairbank Center when he founded it. It was called the Harvard Center for East Asian Research, and it was founded at a moment in. Uh, American history when 
the Cold War was at its height, and there was very little knowledge about China. China was, of course, closed to foreign scholars in the 1950s. It was originally founded as the Center for East Asian Research as an attempt to build knowledge, develop scholars, uh, and promote research and teaching on East Asia. Our geographic scope has shrunk in the last 60 years. The Center for East Asian Research span off a Korea Institute, a, uh, uh, the Reichshauer Institute for Japanese Studies, and so on. But this core mission of advancing learning about China, China studies across disciplines has, has, has remained consistent. So the Fairbanks Center now is the intellectual home for all scholars at Harvard who are working on any aspect of China studies. And that's one of the one of the great strengths of the center is its interdisciplinary role. It's a place where political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, and now increasingly people like specialists in environmental science, specialists in urbanization, specialists in business can come together and uh, try to develop a more comprehensive understanding of this very complex society. And can, if I could just add, it also serves as an intellectual community for the whole region. Um, and so scholars from all over New England and all over the country come in for the, the library, um, but especially for scholars who reside in the New England area. There are a lot of uh, opportunities to participate in this intellectual community, the Fairbanks Center. So some of our authors are not at Harvard per se, but they're center associates or research associates at the Fairbanks Center. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've had the privilege of going to your center a few times over the last few years. And every time I go, I meet fascinating people, not mm -hmm. all of whom are necessarily working mm -hmm. at the center, but you seem to have almost like a salon of interesting China people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the book really showcases the whole breadth of expertise that you have available to Actually, that's you. our new mission statement. <laughs> what was it? A salon, a salon of interesting China people. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sure. Jeremy's good at that. Uh, so I mean, there were some individuals who created this volume whose names are going to be really familiar to just about anyone who's ever you know pursued China studies even pretty casually. I'm people who preceded you, Michael, as, as, as center's directors, including like Ezra Vogel and Rod McFarquhar, Bill Kirby, Mark Elliott. Uh, but others like Liz Perry, Joseph Fusmith, Leonard Westad, and Paul Cohen, who are, you know, real, you know, names. Uh, it's very star-studded, but there are also a lot of less well-known scholars. Can you name-check a couple of people uh, who maybe the broader China-watching community might not be as familiar with? Uh, talk about the work that they do and why you tap them for inclusion in, in this volume. Um, yeah, I'll name one. Um, Meg Rithmeyer mm -hmm. is a junior scholar at Harvard. We're taking notes. We're going to put these people on the podcast, right, Jeremy? <laughs> you should put Meg on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, she is at the business school, uh, and she, in this volume, wrote about urbanization um, ah. in China, and she's fantastic. And she's not well-known yet, but I anticipate that she will be. Um, and so we included her because her research is so dynamic and she is a great communicator um, in terms of her, her essays. So um, we didn't actually so much choose the individual authors. We invited the entire executive committee of the Fairbanks Center. So basically we asked all of the active participants in the life of the center to join us. And one of the great things about the center is that includes big names, as you say, people like Arna Westad, uh, Liz Perry, Joe Fusmith, but also the junior colleagues that we've just hired at Harvard in the last couple of years who are going to be the next generation of greats. So uh, Jennifer mentioned Meg Rithmeyer, the other younger folk that are, are in the book 
book, Arnab Ghosh, a great promising historian, uh, Wang Yuhua, who's a political scientist. And one of the things that's really cool about his piece is he's he's very much in the tradition, of, in the in the contemporary mode of political science. He works, does a lot of quantitative analysis and analyzes big data. But then he wrote this amazing piece about what emperors can teach right. uh, Secretary General Xi. That's sort of an odd piece, I thought. It, it is. is. It is. Sort of it's a... And then some of the people... Um, like I said, aren't at the Fairbanks Center. Andrew Erickson, we tapped um, because uh, of his particular expertise on the military. Security, so, yeah. uh, and so he's at the, uh, Naval, War the Naval War College. Yeah, right. So we try to keep the community rather broad because the Fairbanks Center England, community right. is broad. Hey, cynical listeners. Just wanted to tell you about this week's sponsor, Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your brand of lenses from anywhere in minutes through an online vision test. It's designed by doctors, and every test is reviewed by a doctor, so they're literally bringing the doctor's office to your home. This isn't a replacement for your periodic full-eye health exam, but it is super convenient. The contact lens prices are unbeatable. The vision test is only 20 bucks, and shipping is free. Best of all, Cynical listeners get $30 off their first Simple Contacts order with promo code SUPCHINA. Try it for yourself and save $30 on your lenses by going to simplecontacts.com slash SUPCHINA or entering the code SUPCHINA at checkout. Again, that's simplecontacts.com slash SUPCHINA or just enter the code Sup China at checkout. I used to bring a bunch of contacts back from China every time I'd go, but uh, now with simple contacts, I can save room in my suitcase for my wife's precious Taobao purchases, which, as we all know, are much, much more important. Now back to the show. May I ask uh, for the two of you, you know, what were the standout pieces? I mean, it's kind of a horrible question to ask editors. I'm totally not touching that one. Jennifer? Is it? I thought which, they were all fantastic. Forget it. Kaiser. But actually, um, can I say one thing about yeah. that, which is totally cool. One of the things that I really liked about how the book turned out is that this really was a new model of writing for a lot of the authors. And it's really interesting the way their individual personalities shone through in this new format. Peter Bull's essay on the relationship between intellectuals and political power in Chinese history could only have been written by Peter Bull. Uh, it screams Peter Bull. Um, David Wong's book. Well, it was a strange one, though, because, I mean, that that So, so that far, you've made two comments and said they're both weird, but okay. Well, no, no. So Peter, Peter of course, is great, but he, he basically stopped at, at the 19th century. He didn't go into the 20th century, which was interesting because I think that the the kind of archetype for the relationship between states and intellectual in China was really forged in 1895, uh, in, in, after the Hundred Days Reforms in 1898, and then May 4th. There's no mention. There's like not a single mention of May so, 4th. I, I mean, I think what he's doing is he's he's saying that there is this discourse that runs through Chinese history and that, that uh, shapes... I mean, I, I'm I'm reading into it because, as you say, he stops really right. at the at the end of the imperial period. But he's saying that there are these ways of talking about the relationship between ideas and political power that continue to shape that relationship today. And then he leaves it to you to figure out the connections. Which is, I teach with Peter. It's exactly what he does in the classroom. 
But I also think it's part of a consequence of how we structured the book. We asked all the authors to keep the essays at about 2,000 words. Right. And so you're talking about these high-powered scholars who typically dive deep in their topics. And so they had to find a balance between their expertise in forming a, a nice, solid argument and being general enough um, to keep the interest of, of a general audience. So you were basically asking Shakespeare to tweet. Kind of. Something along those <laughs> Kind lines. of. And so I think it comes uh. through in some of the articles more than others because a couple of the authors would push back during the editorial process and say, well, how am I supposed to make a really solid argument in 2,000 words? And, you know, we, we couldn't say, well, no, you're not supposed to because we did want them to make a really solid argument in 2,000 words. But you couldn't include everything as a result. And so I think in the case of Peter Bowl, he, as Michael stated, was suggesting that this is the nugget of his argument, and then you can pull it through. But right, you can pull it through if you're a China scholar and you're familiar with 20th century relations. So, them. Kaiser, let's move away from uh, one that you perhaps consider strange. What do you think? What 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 for you were the highlights of the book? Because I know you enjoyed it. Yeah. Really so one of them would be Yawen Lei's piece on uh, Chinese public opinion. I thought that was really great. Uh, especially this this exploration, I thought it was quite a, quite original. Uh, she looked at how during the '90s and the 2000s uh, there was this netizen activism that was bolstered by uh, this journalists and lawyers mm-hmm. working in tandem. And I mean, that thought had occurred to me before, but I'd never really seen it articulated. And she gave really she. She? Yes. Yeah, she, yeah, I, I see. Brand new book, future guest. Okay, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, that, that that one really stuck with me. Um, I think there there were sort of hit and miss. There were some that I thought uh, did a very good job of writing to the intended audience and uh, and getting these ideas out. There were some that st- sort of stayed still a little too, you know, in in the ivory tower and were a little still in the jargon and in, in in the patois of, of academia, but. I think in general it, it did a, a, a pretty good job, and I thought that actually a lot of the the the, the people who were real you know old hoary specialists like Ezra Vogel, I thought his piece on China and Japan was incredibly accessible. That could have run in any popular magazine and 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 been read and appreciated. But um, and I thought maybe I had observed a pattern that it felt like age and accessibility were correlated positively. Was that am I wrong there? It's 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 interesting you thought it never it never occurred to me. Um, it is I think true that this was a really big challenge that we gave our colleagues. Uh, yeah. You don't get to Harvard, you don't get to be a professor at Harvard, uh, and you certainly don't get to be a tenure professor at Harvard by writing accessible pieces. Right. Uh, and so it may just be that the ones with more experience were more willing to stretch. Um, were were less constrained by, as you say, the the the, the constraints of of academe. There are some exceptions, though. Um, I'm thinking of of uh, Arnab Ghosh's piece on why it matters that Chinese uh, leaders tend to be long lived, uh, which is the kind of sort of quirky piece. The, the basic argument is that presumably that question came from him and not from you. <laughs> that, def- that question definitely came from him. So the, the basic argument in that is that, or the basic story is that. Leaders of the Communist Party live longer than ordinary Chinese people, and they live longer than people in other parts of the world. And that's particularly interesting because this is a political system where retired leaders have a lot of influence. So precisely the system where 
retired people have a lot of influence uh, is the place where retired leaders live the longest. Uh, and that's pretty interesting given how, how long the world is, how, how quickly the, the world is changing. Ezra's piece, Ezra's a missionary on this issue, right? right. He, he is committed uh, as a scholar, as an intellectual to the cause of understanding between the Chinese and the Japanese peoples and the Chinese and Japanese nations. And so he, I think he slotted really naturally into this project because this is an issue that he wants, he wants to be widely heard on. Right. It was uh, interesting to read that piece after just talking to Richard McGregor about his book, Asia's Reckoning. We had him on the podcast not too long ago, right, Jeremy? Yeah. Yeah, Very good. And, you know, I I certainly, uh, you know, you pointed out some of those pieces, Kaiser, that you thought were standard, and I I agree with those. I I think we should also mention that the book covers a great variety of topics that are not just news and politics. I was delighted, for example, to read Why Do Chinese Classic Novels Matter by uh, Y.E. Lee? And I think also, I skipped that one. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've read all four of your novels. I've read all four of your novels, and they all suck. Okay, no, 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 but, no um, they don't. Three da- Kingdoms does not suck. Also, David, David uh, Doe Wang's chapter on science fiction and the future yeah, as yeah, imagined yeah, by yeah. Chinese writers. But to me, I, the inclusion of these two chapters was really special because these are things that you know the i mean in some ways this book is the equivalent of an airport book i mean in the sense it's like okay what what do you have to know about china these are the questions you have to answer and i was delighted that some of the questions you felt people should know about the answer to included these literary things you know the great novels of china that is something i mean you agree kaiser people should know about it's not the first thing i would i would Put in front of people, though it's really not. It's not the first thing in the book. No, it's, it's in not the first there, thing though, and I, I think it's important. But isn't it? Isn't it? A, I mean, isn't it wonderful that Y. E. Lee, who has devoted her whole career to exploring these novels, is able to think about exploring them as you know, in a very like specific, educated tradition of literary analysis, is able to say, well, here's why you, Jeremy, waiting in the airport lounge. Should should read, read these novels, yeah, uh, and and she comes up with the answer. Of course, that's at a certain level obvious. It's because they're part of a font of human experience that is universal. Um, and actually, at an age in an age, especially when when our so many of our students are learning Chinese because it's the world's fastest growing economy, and uh, there are all these economic opportunities, all these philistine reasons for studying Chinese. Well, they're they're not. I mean, they're, the reality is that's why a lot of people sure, are, are sure, doing this. Sure. Uh, I think uh, Ye's contribution is really useful to say that this is an enormously rich culture that is worth experiencing. It's worth it's worth knowing something about. It's also one of the ways the Fairbank Center works best because the kinds of conversations that you can have between David Wong's book on futurism and Rod McFarquhar's book on the influence of Mao is not something that would happen without bringing together specialists mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. different disciplines, different traditions into into a single space. So this. This tendency now, I mean, this new trend, and I mean, there are people who have been really, uh, I think, holding high the banner of this for for some time now. I think Jeff Wasserstrom at UC Irvine really counts as among them to try to bring expert China knowledge in into popular media and to to sort of translate it uh, and and to draw you people out. The National Committee has, of course, its its PIP program, Public Intellectuals and Policy Program. Another thing, uh, we interviewed a gentleman, uh, a professor at Charles University in in Prague, 
who has a program he calls Acamedia. See what he did there? Mm-hmm. It's it's very very clever. You know, to, to really you know train academics. So, uh, I think it's it's an important thing. I mean, actually, yeah, this is a terrible what, name, but an important thing. But no, but, I mean, isn't this yeah. kind of what what we do, Jeremy? I mean, yeah, I, I, I well, like I mean, I, I would not I like uh, we, dare to um, put myself up as an academic, but we would like to introduce smart academics to ordinary people. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was talking about that that whole uh, age thing. Oh, what, Scholars, what the, let me say, right. rather than academic. Oh, can, can I just say that Jeff gave possibly the best blurb of any book ever, uh, but then he pulled it back, which was probably also the right thing to do. His initial <laughs> blurb was, finally, a book about China structured as a whole series of questions, <laughs> which is, of course, exactly how his book Right. By written. the way, I should give a shout out to Jeff, whose third edition of the book, which he says is going to be massively revised, is launching in March. I was saying uh, one of the the essays that I really enjoyed reading uh, was the the last one, which I think deserved to be last, which was uh, How Has the Study of China Changed in the Last 60 Years, which was by Pauli Cohen. Uh, he must be now in his 80s, I, I reckon. Yes. Yeah, he must be. Uh, he's always been someone with who's written very intelligently about how we study history. I mean, he's kind of an historiographer, if you if you will. I remember uh, reading, studying history in China when I was a graduate student. Uh, I had, um, you know, China and Christianity on my bookshelf when I was a kid. It was my, one of my grandfather's books. And so I, I, and he, I know he studied with Fairbank and with Benjamin Schwartz. Uh, and actually, Fairbank himself, I think it's fair to say, in the last years of his life. Do you remember that book that he wrote? Uh, the one that he actually published the year after he died. I think it was out in 93. Uh, it was called China, A New History. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of this review of, of recent literature where the old man really showed that he was making a, a, an effort to, to retool and to really kind of change his own th- thinking. I mean, he really kind of internalized the, the criticism about the, the, the Western impact model. Your, your center is well-named. I mean, he, he really changed with the times. How would he have seen this volume, do you think, if you, you were to, to resurrect him today? Would he applaud this effort to popularize? Oh, I think so. I think that, you know, the the trajectory of the Fairbanks Center is somewhat mirrored in the order of the book, uh, in the sense that, you know, we start off with politics, just like Fairbanks mm-hmm, did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the questions that were asked by that first generation of China scholars are very much about the legitimacy of the Chinese regime, uh, as we, as we started off this book, and you know as as we got more and more of a foundation of knowledge um, of the politics of China, um, and slowly were able to move away from those questions that defined that first generation of you know. How did the CCP win? You know, well, who lost China? All of those types of questions. Um, the, the scholarship on China broadened out, and especially once, as Cohen talks about, uh, China became more accessible to scholars. Uh, all of a sudden, the types of scholarship that we saw also broadened, right? And and so you get questions outside of the scope of politics, and so. You know, when Cohen's writing that article, he talks a little bit about how the progression of, of scholarship occurred um, with looking at social history and popular culture and types of questions like that. And we see that in the book as well. And I think Fairbank would applaud that. And he would also um, be quite intrigued to see how uh, China studies has 
not only broaden in terms of disciplines, but also just in terms of interdisciplinary right, types right, of right. questions. And you know, like the McElroy article in here on pollution or the article on environmental consciousness by um, Karen Thornber mm-hmm. are, are new approaches to um, China's, China scholarship that I think Fairbank would be quite pleased to see. I completely agree. The Fairbank Center was, was founded, of course, at the height of the Cold War. Uh, and it was founded uh, in part because of a general sense. It was funded uh, by think tanks and by um, Ford Foundation and so forth, in part because it was thought that we needed to know, we in America needed to know more about China uh, to basically defend against China. Uh, I often, a line I often use in China is that um, there was a lot of early research on how China was liberated, but the main purpose was to make sure that no one else got liberated. Uh, it, was about, it was about preventing the domino from... Uh, and I think the, uh, the, as Jennifer was saying, this book represents a much broader approach to China, uh, looking at China in all, uh, in all of its complexities, to come back to something you said earlier. Uh, in part, that's possible because our relationship with China is so much more extensive and sophisticated than it was in, in 1956. And I've, I've never met Fairbank. It's a, an enormous privilege to, to, be in, to run the center that's named after him. But I'm 100% sure that, uh, that Fairbank would applaud that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't help but agree. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to ask a question. I think maybe, Kaiser, you're starting to look towards the, the end of the show. But I, if I can get in a final question about how historians talk to ordinary people about current affairs, because, I mean, you're both historians, right? Um, and yet this book, it, in, it includes a lot of history, but it's a book about uh, current affairs. It's a book about the China of now. How relevant is the study of Chinese history to understanding uh, what's going on in China today? That's one of those like questions that's so hard to answer for me because it's so painfully obvious. But Well, it is so painfully right. obvious, but Kaiser, if you remember, we had a couple of historians on a podcast that we never ended up running, and I asked them this question, and they both said, oh, it's not relevant at all. And I was like, what? I'm trying to help you like get okay. more students, and you said it's not relevant. So I, it, I think it's relevant, but so if it is it relevant? So if it weren't, if it weren't relevant at all, yeah. um, why would historical nihilism be like the chief crime uh, identified by uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, one reason, as you know, the, the, the chief the one ideological that, the crime. Chief ideolo- yeah. Yes, sorry. <laughs> Indeed, it's, it's, probably, it's probably not. So that's the not as bad as mistresses and gold bars and Lamborghinis, but yeah, um, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. and, and one reason it's bad is because uh, a certain vision of history is enormously important to bring us back full circle, is enormously important to the legitimacy of the party today. Uh, and so one of our jobs as historians, I think, is to, point out places where uh, the history is a little more complicated than than the narrative would suggest. The best example of this is is uh, Ezra Vogel's piece on on Japan China, which helps us understand on the one hand why Chinese people uh, freak out so much when Japanese political leaders visit a shrine in Tokyo, the Yasukuni Shrine, but also points out that. Uh, that's a product not just of what actually happened 
not just history as it occurred, but also how political leaders in China have used history to accomplish political objectives. So that's a kind of internal perspective. It's relevant because the Chinese themselves say it's relevant. Uh, and one of our jobs is to explore that and question it. And as a historian, naturally, we're both historians of China, but I would like to make even a broader argument that history is important for all nations. And, you know, we Americans typically can see how history might be important for a place like China. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of political identity uh, is much broader than, than just China. In the United States, it's also incredibly important, um, you know, and how you can uh, forge your own uh, historical narrative. And so in that way, you know, our discussions of China are just part of a larger discussion, I think, of political identity that is relevant in the U.S. as well as China. Well, I'm someone, like I said, who, who would never question the idea that his, his studied history is relevant. I mean, that's where you should begin, obviously, for, for, for something like me. But at the same time, I am really wary of that old historian parlor trick where you, you say, ah, you see, old wine and new bottles, where everything is sort of some historical rhyme, uh, where everything has some sort of genetic roots. It's, it's uh, word, my, 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 my anathema essentialism. And I see it everywhere. I see it, uh, so much of it in uh, the reporting and the writing about China today, where uh, there are these claims that, that I mean, and I see it on both sides. I see it used as a sort of defense. You see the apologists for some of the, the heinous things that, that Beijing does or the, that old line you've, you've heard about, you know, China's political culture is such that it will never be hospitable to, to democracy, which is, of course, just patent nonsense. Uh, you know, the, these things change over time. So it's really hard to find. I mean, you need to study the history because you need to see the extent to which it is malleable. There's There are Overton windows that shift over time in, in the discussion of, of, of China, right? So that's that's uh, makes me think immediately of Michael Pewitt's piece on yeah. who is Confucius in modern China. And that's exactly what, once you've read that piece, you are in a much better position to challenge any generalization about Confucian culture. And you hear them all the time, and you hear right. them both from people who are positive on contemporary China, right, that there are all these virtues in Confucianism that are suited to the modern age. You also hear it from people who are uh, and negative on China, sure. that, that China is hidebound by tradition, that it'll never have rule of law, it'll never have representative government. And one of the things uh, Pewitt does, is, which he does brilliantly in his other work, is to show how the Confucius we have in our minds is not simply a, a window onto this man who lived however many centuries ago, but is the product of history. He's, a, he's, a, he's been subject to constant interpretation and reinterpretation. And understanding that helps you understand the political positions that people take. Right. There are no comparable figures in Western history. No. And, and that also resonates with Y.E. Lee's essay on, on the classic novel and how the Chinese classic novels are alive and well today, but not as they were maybe, you know, hundreds of years ago, but they continue to be embedded in new ways in, right. in, in, the, in the culture. And I think that political identity is, is, is very similar. Yeah, and you don't think of the, the three kingdoms that has been reinvented as business books in many, many times. We missed that, Ben. That's we terrible. missed that one. I should have jumped on that. Yeah. Uh, another great piece on this is, uh, is Arthur Kleinman's uh, essay on, on mental health in... Oh, yeah, uh, that, was a, that was a good one. That fascinating was a very, very, piece. Very and, yeah. and, and he says... At a certain level, the, the 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 core claim is is kind of obvious, but it's really interesting when you when you think it through that uh, Chinese attitudes towards mental health are conditioned by 
their participation in the market economy, by their ideas about bioscience, their ideas about medicine, by their financial circumstances, but also shaped, he uses the phrase, shaped by the lineaments of tradition. That it's not so that's like that's not an academic phrase. It is an academic <laughs> phrase, but it's but it's it, it's right because it's it's it says that that what people think being a good person is. Moral values are shaped by a historical inheritance, but they're not produced by them. Chinese people don't have a genetic predisposition to filiality, right. but you wouldn't you wouldn't therefore say that filial piety is irrelevant in contemporary China. Nor would you say that the average Chinese person is perhaps more filial than any other person. The point is that filiality and the ideas of filial piety are part of how they make sense of the world. Yeah, there's this cultural mimetic transmission transmission of these ideas. Yeah, it's always the hardest thing to tweeze apart. Is yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's terrific. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I think that uh, all of our listeners would would benefit from picking up a copy of it and, and reading it. Uh, we look forward to your comments on it. Uh, uh, more than benefit, Kaiser. That's kind of a measly praise. It's a great book. It, yeah. It's very entertaining, um, which uh, for me as a non-academic is the first thing I need. And it, it's good. <laughs> it's very don't, entertaining. Don't be, don't be too put off by that legitimacy question at the beginning. <laughs> and I love the legitimacy question. So yeah, for me, everything is copacetic and I love this book and I recommend it to all of our listeners. The book, once again, is called The China Questions, Critical Insights into a Rising Power. And yeah, Jeremy and I both highly recommend it. Speaking of recommending, uh, let's let's make some recommendations as we do each week. First, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by China. Subscribe to our free daily email newsletter and stay current on the most important news from China. You can also follow China and Seneca on Facebook or on Twitter. We are at the handle China News. And if you like the Seneca Podcast, please do leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store. It means a lot to us. On to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you get the ball Okay, rolling? I have another recommendation from my favorite bookstore now in the world, which is McKay's in Nashville, Tennessee. This totally whack job warehouse of secondhand books. Um, and I recently found a volume that I am just loving. It's called Drawn Together, the Collected Works of R and A. Crumb. So that's R. Crumb, the cartoonist, and his wife, uh, Aline Crumb, nee uh, Kominsky. And it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful volume of, like, if you like R. Crumb, which I do very much, um, Remind me, what, what's our he's a, he's the kind of he he came to prominence, I guess, in the late sixties, seventies, as a kind of he was the sort of alt comics guy. Um, he does these comics with, uh, you know, some of them are very kind of rude and sort of vulgar, and uh, there's lots of sex and drugs, LSD. He was kind of a part of the hippie movement Freak essentially brothers, stuff like that yeah, yeah but just really really funny funny comments uh comics um and this one with his wife was something that i'd never seen a collaboration of theirs before and it's, it's really funny the on the on the back of the book is a a little comic uh a picture of the two of them together and you know uh they made the book together and it's um it says something like uh jew and goy equals joy <laughs> she's Jew- she's like this like really That's serious sick, so. like neurotic jewish oh, she is. lady oh, artist and he's this like dorky kind of goatee dweeby wasp and uh, they had a wonderful relate have a wonderful relationship and they made a really great book <laughs>
All right, Michael. Oh, let's go. <laughs> Jennifer first. Jennifer Lee's first. What do you have for us? I read uh, Beyond the Beautiful Forevers. Oh, that's a great book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. by Kate, Catherine Boo. Catherine, yeah. Right. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and uh, so... So that, that takes place in a, a slum near the airport in, in Mumbai. Mumbai, right? Right, and it's, it sort of follows the story of this uh, young boy and his family through their their opportunities and their challenges and their legal hassles, the legal and, hassles, and how the system is just really stacked against them. Um, and it makes you really question: What does opportunity mean? It's just that new genre of sort of creative nonfiction that it's it's really a joy to read, right? Yeah. But there, there, I I understand she got a little bit of pushback on people who said, yes. "Look, you couldn't have possibly reported this. You didn't see this. You this was not an eyewitness account. Or if it was, you know, how could you have stood by and watched this happen?" And, but well, uh, I think she, she she talked about this a bit. She talks about it at the end of the book, and it, I. Um, question why she included that discussion at the very end because you the whole time you're reading it you're wondering well how did she get this you know she's an outsider she identifies herself as an outsider she doesn't speak the language and and you know did she have such extensive notes and such so many extensive interviews that she was able to actually um recreate all these experiences because obviously like you said she did not witness um many of these these uh Goings on, and so she, she does address. Uh, she describes first person, right? Right, right. but she des- she describes the process in, at the back. But I think that's what one of the things that makes the book good is because it is problematic, and so you have to wonder how do you how can you access um, lives of of these people and, and sort of confront the issues. And that's what she said she wanted to do. She wanted to really examine poverty in her um, adopted country. I believe her, she married um, Indian, a man from yeah, India. Yeah. Jeremy, have you read that? Yeah. Oh, you should. You should. It's really, it's very good. I'm wondering when, when the Chinese version of Beyond the Beautiful Forevers is going to come out. I, where, where, when, you know, somebody does the same thing, uh, writing on on China. I mean, Michael Meyer. A little I was bit, thinking that. Yeah. That's yeah. The yeah. Parallel, yeah. A bit, but it's it's different because well, he does speak Chinese and he's he's very. I mean, he's part of the community. He's, he inserts himself a little more, makes himself part of the, the story a little more. But yeah, great book. Yeah, good recommendation. Michael, what do you have for me? Uh, I'm going to cheat, if you don't mind. I have three Please. recommendations for you. Go for uh, it. If you like the China questions, if you like this conversation, I would uh, urge you to visit the Fairbanks Center website. Uh, with uh, We have a very uh, extensive uh, social media presence, uh, a wonderful uh, blog, and also uh, a terrific podcast series uh, run by our brilliant communications coordinator, James Evans. Yeah, who I think, hey, James. Who, I think, yeah, who yeah. I think has interviewed both of you for his podcasts. Uh, uh, me at least, Jeremy. Hi, James. Not me. I don't oh, think well. I, I made the cut, but um, cross yes. my fingers. It's, it's fine. Uh, and I think uh, it's part of our mission uh, as has come out today to share knowledge and expertise among academic from academics to the larger public. So that's my first recommendation. Uh, it's oh, James. In- by the way, is also like a god of infographics. Yes, indeed. Another reason. Another reason to visit our website, uh, Fairbanks Center at Harvard. Uh, Harvard.edu. Uh, my second recommendation, it's uh, it's an enormous privilege to direct the Fairbank Center, but I'm also uh, a historian in my spare time, uh, and I've just published a book called The Art of Being Governed, Everyday, oh, yes. Politics, Everyday Politics in Late Imperial China, which is full of tales of swashbuckling soldiers, uh, but actually also tries to make an argument about... Uh, how you can use stories from Ming Dynasty soldiers to think about politics in new ways. 
And my third recommendation is uh, for a, a wonderful book I read uh, a while ago uh, called Empire of Necessity by huh. the NYU historian Greg Grandin, uh, who's a brilliant historian of Latin America. His best-known book is probably Fordlandia. Okay, uh, okay. Empire of Necessity is an amazing uh, account of how some of the sort of core American ideas of uh, liberal ideas of freedom uh, were rooted actually in 18th and 19th century commitments to the idea that one had to be free to own other people. Uh, and so it's an amazing link between slavery and American thought. Uh, and it's told through uh, this extraordinary story, uh, uh, Herman Melville's other book besides Moby Dick, uh, is called Benito Sereno, which is an huh. account of a slave rebellion in the South Pacific. Uh, and Grandin actually traces the roots of that story, uh, the, tr- the, 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 the history of the, this, this novel that Melville writes. And it's, it's just a beautiful and moving uh, work of history that I recommend. Wow. You gave me a good segue for my recommendation, which is Melville, because... Uh... <laughs> No, it, my recommendation is not this was Melville. not set up. No. No. <laughs> no. My recommendation is not Melville. It's actually a book that Anne Stevenson Young um, recommended to me. She has a pretty good idea of what I like in literature, so we recommend books to one another once in a while uh, via Facebook. But uh, the book is called The North Water by Ian McGuire. It's a 2017 novel. Uh, I think it was long-listed or short-listed for a National Book Award or for or something. I, I, I don't remember what. Some prize. Uh, terrific, terrific novel. It's If you can imagine sort of Joseph Conrad meets uh, Cormac McCarthy and then with like Herman Melville uh, and... I'm gonna say who else we stick in there. I mean, there there's there's a, a lot of stuff that it touches. It's uh it's got you know a, a wailing kind of a backstory. There's murder in it. There's uh this sort of brutality and just 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 unblinking, unstinting look at 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 you know human cruelty and violence that you. I let's, let's say uh Jack London. Let's throw Jack London in the mix, and then you you have a pretty good idea of what this book is. Uh, fantastically well written. Uh, a, a real draw. I, I'm about two thirds of the way done with it. I was reading it on the plane on the way up here in the airport. Um, can't wait to finish it. But yeah, Ian McGuire, The North Water. So Jennifer Rudolph, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, come up visit us from Worcester. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Michael Sony, thank you for coming. And uh, we'll see you at the, our, our conference tomorrow. Yeah. Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we we look forward to having to talking to you about the art of being governed. And uh, Jennifer, keep us posted on the work that you're doing because you know I'm always up for a good chat about Jung Chung Gong. Love those pirates. <laughs> the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com/subchinanews and follow us on Twitter at at subchinanews. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.